one of the most exciting finishes to an Indianapolis 500 race, took place back in 2006. There was a rookie race driver who was leading the race. His name was Marco Andretti. He turned out to be the grandson of the great Mario Andretti. Here he was 19 years old, a rookie, his first time to run the race at the Indianapolis 500, and he was leading when he came into the last lap. It was fun to listen to all the commentators. All they could say was, Marco Andretti's going to win. Marco is going to win. 19 years old, he's going to win. And he came around the fourth turn and started to head for home on the last stretch. And here was Sam, Sam Harnish. No one really seemed to realize he had been gaining momentum. He was coming up and suddenly he pulled out and was right beside him and raced by 450 feet before the finish line. After 499.9 miles, he suddenly went past him and beat Marco by six one hundredths of a second. No one could believe it. It's the only time that someone has never led in a race suddenly won. Everybody was talking about the finish in 2006 until the finish in 2011. In 2011, you had J.R. Um, Hildebrand. And J.R. Hildebrand was leading the race again, a rookie race driver, having an incredible race. And he was leading all through and finally coming to the end. And the commentators came on and said, one more lap. He gets the white flag. One more lap. Four turns around the track and Jr. will win. And he went through the first turn. And he went through the second turn. And he went through the third turn. And he came to the fourth turn to head for home. There happened to be another driver who was in the middle of the track going slower. He was about to be lapped. If you were here last week, we talked about the blue flag, the courtesy flag. It says, pull over. I guess he didn't see the blue flag. He didn't pull over. And so it was that J.R. wound up going wide to pass him. And when he did, something happened and he hit the wall. He hit the wall. Now, it wasn't just a straight-on horrible crash, but he hit the wall enough to lose his tire and wreck the car, and now he is sliding down the stretch towards the finish line. And here came Dan Weldon racing from second place, and right as he's getting to the finish line, Dan Weldon went across first, and J.R. finished second. You can finish a race even if you're sliding in a crashed car, He finished second when he was in the last turn, ready for home. And in the end, Dan Weldon won the Indianapolis 500 for the second time. What it reminds you is, it's an exciting thing to watch a race, but the last lap still counts. And the last lap can sometimes be the hardest. This morning, I want to continue on this sermon series, Racing to the Flag. We have said that the flags that are used in racing, and there are many, communicate information to the drivers in the race. Before you had wireless communication, flags were incredibly important, for you would not know these things. We've also said that 
we believe that the same messages getting communicated to these drivers are the messages that God wants to, to send and communicate to us as we run the race of life. Today, we're looking at the white flag. And the white flag is waved when you have one lap to go. You think about it. If there has been no communication in wireless days, and you've been out there going around this track, you go around that track 200 times. You cover 500 miles. It takes three to three and a half hours. If you're out there lapping and lapping and lapping, you don't know what lap it is. You need to see that white flag that tells you one lap to go. And you know the race isn't over till you run that last lap because it's an important lap to run. In our scripture lesson this morning, I think we were seeing Jesus on the last lap. He had gotten the white flag. Just a day or two before, he had entered into Jerusalem. It had been a Palm Sunday. People were waving their palm branches as Jesus came descending down the the mountain to go to Jerusalem. If you've never been to the Holy Land, never been to the Mount of Olives, I can tell you it is so beautiful. Truly, coming down the Mount of Olives, you see over all of Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us that as Jesus came into Jerusalem, coming down the Mount of Olives, he stopped and he began to weep. He wept. He saw what was coming. He knew what was up. And he wept and he said, Would you know the things that made for peace? But now they are hid from your eyes. It was a hard moment. He came on into Jerusalem. Every day he started going to the temple to teach, to preach, to heal. But John tells us that one day when Jesus is sitting in the temple, he suddenly says, my soul is deeply troubled. Father, what should I say? Save me from this hour? No. It is for this hour that I have come. Father, glorify thy name. You can sense the agony, the struggle. We've not yet gone to the Last Supper. We haven't gone to the cross, but we're in the last lap. He knows the race is almost done. And there is that sense it is so hard. What should I say? Save me from this hour? To have to go through this? Graduates, today's a special day. We're very proud of you, very excited for you. You've received the white flag. You've been on the last lap. You're finishing this race. Now, next week we're going to talk about life as one race and getting the checkered flag. It's Memorial Day. We'll talk about the one race. Today, I want to use racing as an analogy for running many races in your life because truly, life is a series of beginnings and endings and beginnings and endings it's the way life is. There are those milestone moments in your life. One of those is graduation, getting your education. It may be starting a career, maybe getting married, having children. It may be losing somebody you loved or going through a divorce, struggling financially. It can be many things, but there's no doubt that you run these races in your life. 
And one of the things that we see is when you come to the end of one of those periods in your life, it sure is easy to grow tired and for it to be difficult, for it to be a hard moment. But if you don't run all the way through, if you don't run the last lap, then you don't do well in the race. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to think about how do we run the race as we come to that last lap and we get ready to begin again. And I want to just share with you two ideas. First of all, I really do believe that when you're running that race and you come to the last lap, it's easy to have problems because we grow tired. I look at Jesus who has been doing this for three years. Three years teaching and preaching and trying to share. And he comes to Jerusalem and the disciples prove right off the bat they still don't get what Jesus is about. That had to be so hard. They still don't get it. And then you had the religious authorities. They didn't get it. They were so jealous of Jesus. The whole world is running after him, they said. All these palm branches. And then there were the Roman authorities. They didn't get it. They were afraid of Jesus. They thought he was going to raise an army and try to have a revolution. You have all these people who are saying things about you that aren't true. They're putting pressures on you and pulling at you. They're confused. And Jesus knows he's going to a cross. It is so easy to feel like, can I make it? Can I do it? What should I say, Father? Save me from this hour? No. Father, glorify thy name. And it says God spoke. And God said, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. Hear that. I have and I will. It was a statement. I have been there to strengthen you and guide you. I have been there and I will be there now. I have been there in the beginning. I will be there in the end. Where you and I make a mistake is when we suddenly think we've got to do it all on our own. When you're running those difficult times in life and you're feeling stressed and pushed and you're not sure you can hang on, it's because we're thinking we've got to do it all on our own. And what we forget is God saying, I have been there and I will be there. We forget to count on God for the guidance and insight and the strength from beyond ourselves to make it. Not long ago, I was in Denver, and I was listening, and I, I heard Jerry Schimmel. I was, it was the Colorado Rocky baseball game, and Jerry Schimmel happens to be the voice of the Colorado Rockies. And when I heard that name, I suddenly went, Jerry Schimmel, I know that name. And I went back and checked on it, and sure enough, it was the same Jerry. You may remember. It was back in 1989. He was the deputy commissioner of the um, Continental Basketball Association, the CBA. It's kind of like the minor league teams in basketball. His best friend um, was Jay, Jay Burnfield, and and he was the commissioner. Well, it turned out that on July the 19th, 1989, the two of them were supposed to be flying out of Denver up to Chicago for a basketball meeting. They went out to the airport, and sure enough, their first flight was oversold, and they got bumped. Some things don't change. They got bumped, 
And so they're put on standby and then standby. They finally got on a flight, flight 232, United to Chicago. They took off and they were about an hour into the flight when they heard an explosion. It was an engine and it fell off the plane. You may remember that. That's not supposed to happen. This wasn't terrorism. This was an explosion and the engine fell off the plane and immediately the plane started to bank. And these pilots managed to give enough thrust to right the plane and somehow keep it in the air. They had lost all hydraulics. There was no flaps they could use, no landing gear. They managed to keep this plane in the air. They came back and they've done this on simulators and it is impossible. The plane always immediately goes over and straight into the ground. There were 297 people on board. All of them should have died. But they kept it in the air. 45 minutes. They made the decision to go to Sioux City, Iowa because there was a very desolate airport there, big runway and cornfields all around it. They knew it was going to be a very serious crash landing. And even though they had managed to somehow, I mean, it's a miracle they kept this thing in the air, the people on board still expected to die. And Jerry said when they came in, they hit so hard. And a plane came up in the air and began to break into pieces and flip around and turn and spin. He said, we thought it would never stop. Finally, it stopped. And he said, I, I, I truly wondered, am I alive or dead? He couldn't figure out what was going on. And then he realized that he was hanging in his seat upside down. He unbuckled his belt and he fell to the ceiling. And now he looked around. And he saw so many people who were dead and others who were dying. And then he smelled smoke. And when he smelled the smoke, he started trying to move the opposite way. And there was a hole in the plane and he managed to get out of the plane. But as he did, he heard a baby crying. And he decided to go back in that plane. He went back in that plane and started digging through all the rubble and all the luggage thrown around and he found an 11-month-old baby girl. She was perfectly fine. And he managed to get her out of the plane. Her whole family would actually escape and make it. The whole family would survive, but this little girl survived because of Jerry. 122 people, 112 people died. But 187 people lived. Jay, his best friend, was one of those who died. Now, you would think if you just lived through one of the worst plane crashes in American aviation and you survived, you'd feel, I'm incredibly lucky. But there's another feeling you can also have, and it's called survivor guilt. And that's actually what happened to Jerry. He began to feel this incredible guilt. I lived, Jay died. I lived, these other people died. And then the nightmares begin to come back. All the nightmares of seeing all these people hanging upside down, dead. People who were dying, you could do nothing about. The fear. He began thinking of all of these things and the nightmares would come. And he found himself withdrawing more and more and more, going out less. He seemed to be feeling weaker and weaker. He could not work. He could not go out. And finally, he became a total recluse in his home. This went on for days and then weeks and then months. 
in the end, he would be there in his home 10 months. He just felt so weak, he literally couldn't get up and do anything. And one afternoon, he was at home sitting upstairs in his bedroom. His wife came home from work. She came upstairs, and when she came in the bedroom, Jerry simply said, it's been a bad day. It's been a bad day. I have no strength. And his wife came over and knelt down at his feet, and then she hugged him. They had played out this scene a thousand times before, just like this, but this time she got up and stepped back away. And she looked at Jerry and said, Jerry, I get my strength from God. And she turned and walked out of the room. And Jerry said, I had these two sentences hanging. I have no strength. Jerry, I get my strength from God. And he said, I got to be honest. I believed in God, but I wasn't a very faithful man. I didn't pray much, but I started to pray. Oh God, I can't do it on my own. I don't have the strength. I can't do it on my own. Help me. Could you help me? And Jerry said, I can't describe it. Like I said, I hadn't been very religious. I can't describe it. All I can tell you is I suddenly started to tingle. And then I started feeling a warmth. And before I knew it, I felt like I was on fire. I could feel this power, this strength. I knew in that moment that my life had just changed. And Jerry got up. And it was the first day to start moving back into life, going out of the house, beginning to move back into life. In the end, he would go back to work and he would land the job as the sports broadcaster for the Denver Nuggets, the professional basketball team. A dream job. He did it for more than a decade, but his greatest love was baseball. And I didn't realize seven years ago he got the job to be the voice of the Colorado Rockies. He's written a book, he gives talks, but the thing he simply says is, my life changed one day. Not the day of the crash of 232, but the day I heard my wife say, Jerry, I get my strength from God. Graduates, you're going to have hard times. It's life. You're going to have a lot of great times, and I pray they're wonderful times. There will be hard times, and you'll wonder if you can hang on. You don't just do it on your own. I have been, and I will be. It's God's promise of guidance and a strength from beyond yourself so that you can finish the race. And secondly, after Jesus had said, Father, glorify your name, it said God spoke and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the people heard it. And some said it thundered. And others said they heard an angel speak. What a great line. Some heard thunder 
Some heard an angel speak. When you're trying to hold on, when you feel like you're trying to do it all yourself and you're struggling and it's so hard, it's easy to become cynical and bitter and angry and frustrated. And when you let yourself get into that spirit, what you're going to hear is noise. You hear thunder. I believe God is trying to speak. I believe that when you find yourself struggling to hold on and finish the race, God speaks. That's the promise of God's grace. God is trying to speak. But some will hear thunder. And others are going to hear an angel speak. Graduates, what I want to encourage you is today, I want to encourage you today to make a commitment that you will live your life in a spirit of gratitude. You have so much for which to be grateful. You're in the last lap. You're going to finish this part of the race. You have so much for which to be grateful. Even when life gets difficult, there are those things for which to be grateful. Graduates, I want to encourage you. You know, everybody's coming around right now to say congratulations and we're going to get you gifts and we're going to do all these nice things for you. I want to ask you this week, if you will write one or more thank you notes to those who helped you finish the race. Maybe it's parents, maybe it's grandparents, maybe it's friends or a teacher. But look beyond yourself and make the commitment that every day you're going to give God thanks and that every day you're going to be spending time thanking those who are around you. you know, this is the year of gratitude at St. Luke's. And it's a year of gratitude because it is fundamental to our faith that if you and I choose to live gratefully, it does something to our core spirit so that when you're struggling, you don't just hear noise. You hear an angel speak. Marsh and I have been reminiscing a lot here lately because of um, when it comes to June, we'll have been here for 26 years. But there's a lot of changes going on in the family right now and um, different people moving into homes. And our son, Paul, well, he's about to finally finish his fellowship in vascular surgery. You've watched him grow up over these last 26 years. We came here, he is in the third grade, graduated high school, and then he went off to Johns Hopkins and played baseball and came back and went to OU Medical School and then down to Texas, to, to Temple, Texas, and to Scott and White Hospital where he did five years of general surgery residency and then two more years of vascular surgery residency and he finally finishes at the end of June. This part of the race will be done. And come August 1, he starts anew, and now you get the green flag, full throttle, it's time to run. You know, that's how it's supposed to happen. But we've been kind of reminiscing and thinking back about our family and the things that have happened. We got to thinking about when we did come 26 years ago. Marcia got a job downtown. She was working for a company. She was a supervisor. She hired and supervised a lot of people. And she did that for several years, but then she got the opportunity to... Uh, for an oral surgery practice that was beginning, and they asked her to come and to be the, uh, um, the administrator and to run their, their practice. She was excited about doing that, and she announced downtown that she's going to be leaving that job. And when she did, one of the people who worked for her, a man named Vien, he was from South Vietnam, he came to her and said, what are you doing on Friday night? Are you free? 
Marsha wasn't expected to be asking out for a date. <laughs> the inn said, my wife and I would like to take you and your husband out for a steak dinner. You gave me a chance. You gave me a job. And I want to say thank you. The inn was a young man. He had graduated high school with honors here in Oklahoma City. He is now working his way through college. He needed a job. He got a job that could work around his hours so he could go full-time to college and full-time to, um, to school uh, and to work. He was married. And Marsha said he was such a great guy, so hardworking, committed. And so he said, absolutely. So Friday night we went out to dinner, went to Outback Steakhouse and had a great steak. And Vian still spoke with a very strong South Vietnamese accent. But I asked him, I said, how did you get here to the United States? Oh, my. It turned out he grew up his whole life in South Vietnam. And when the communists overran the country, his father had worked for the government. They put him in prison. After a while, his father got out of prison. But it was obvious some people still wanted him dead. They harassed the family all the time. He said, we lived in a hut, grass and some wood. There's no electricity. No running water. You cooked your meals over an open fire. But they were always harassed by people in the government. He knew people wanted his father dead. Vien was 13 years old. And he said one night his father came in and said, If you want to go on a boat, it leaves in 20 minutes. Be at the dock. It was nighttime. You could take no clothes, no food. No water, no possessions, the clothes on your back. You could be at the dock in 20 minutes if you wanted to get on this boat and try to escape. Everybody in the family was to make their own decision. Everybody in the family decided to go. 20 minutes later, they were on the dock. It was a little flat bottom wooden fishing boat. There was no engine, only a sail. A hundred people got on the boat, way more than it was built for. The sides were six inches above the water. It was obvious if any kind of storm would come up, the waves would swamp the boat and everyone would drown. With no engine, it meant if they got out into the ocean and the winds went calm, they would die of thirst or starvation. They stood on the dock and they had a prayer and they got on the boat. And it set sail. It went out to sea. They thought they'd be to Cambodia in a few days. But three days into it, they were still way out at sea. No land in sight. Now they were beginning to really struggle with thirst. And a freighter came by. The freighter did not pick them up. But the freighter did give them water and food. And it nourished them and helped to sustain their spirits. And with the renewed thing, they were able to all hold on. There was no storm. The wind continued to gently blow. And about two days later, they hit the coast of Cambodia. In Cambodia, people took them in and gave them shelter and food and water. And through the help of the church, they began looking for sponsors in the United States. The inn's grandfather, years before, had immigrated to Chicago. And when he found out that the family was now freed in Cambodia, he managed to raise the money to send so the entire family could fly to Chicago and he could sponsor them. 
Now, you imagine you're 13 years old. You've lived your whole life in South Vietnam. You've lived in a hut with no electricity, no running water. And the first thing you're going to see when you land in the USA is Chicago. They lived there for a while, but then some churches in Oklahoma City sponsored them to come to Oklahoma City. I knew that VN was very active in his Catholic church. As I say, married, working on his college education, such a good guy. And I just said, VN, I'm so proud of you, all that you've done. And he said, Bob, the people in the United States, they have no idea how much they have to be grateful for. And I said, I think you're right, Vien. Sometimes we don't. But I tell you, it sure did take a lot of courage on your part. I'm so proud of the, that you were willing to get on that boat knowing the odds were that you were going to die. And he said, we had prayed. We put our lives into God's hands so that whatever happened, we were in God's hands. We knew we had to try. I said, well, it looks like it's worked out pretty well for you. And he said, it has. But you know, the other surprising thing is that after we made it here safe and sound and life was good, how many of those people have forgotten to give God thanks? Graduates, don't forget to give God thanks every day, to give God thanks, to thank those around you, it'll help you to hear an angel speak and not just hear noise. You've been given the white flag. You're in the last lap. You have all the strength you need. I have been and I will be. God promised, you can be assured, God's running with you. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.